This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Catherine Cullen, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Wednesday, January 17th. The Ethics Commissioner is being called to the hot seat on Parliament Hill. MPs want answers about the Prime Minister's Christmas vacation. We'll look at why just ahead. And the U.S. is designating the Houthis in Yemen a terrorist group, but the Houthis say they won't stop their attacks on Red Sea ships. Coming up, we'll look at whether we've arrived at the broader Middle East conflict so many have warned of. We begin here in Ottawa, where the Prime Minister's holiday trip to Jamaica is under fire. MPs on the House Ethics Committee have voted to call Canada's Ethics Commissioner to testify and answer questions about Justin Trudeau's free stay at a luxurious resort. CBC's Kate McKenna is following this story for us. She joins us now. Uh, so, Kate, the Prime Minister said he consulted the Ethics Commissioner before this vacation. So what's the issue here? Well, conservative ethics critic Michael Barrett is really questioning whether or not the prime minister told the ethics commissioner the whole story. And part of why he's questioning that is because publicly, at least, uh, the prime minister's story has changed. Uh, We know that before Christmas, the PMO, the prime minister's office, did say that the Prime Minister was covering his own expenses for the accommodations on this trip. And then uh, as the days went on, that story changed to say that actually uh, he was staying with a friend. And then finally that friend was named and it was Peter Green and and he owns a, a... a villa in Jamaica where the family stayed for 10 days. And we know it's not the first time he stayed there. He stayed there last Christmas as well. But the National Post did do some reporting that found that this villa rents out for thousands of dollars a night. And uh, soon after that, Michael Barrett, the ethics critic, uh, sent a letter to the ethics commissioner saying, you know, if in fact this does rent out for thousands of dollars a night, then this essentially amounts to a financial gift. And were you aware of that uh, at the time when you spoke and consulted with the Prime Minister? And of course, we know that the Ethics Commissioner doesn't clear vacation, mm. so to speak. We, we just know that they consult and, and they and they you know weigh in on, on the plan. So Michael Barrett really questioning what he was told. Uh, but the PMO has said, you know what, uh, they did everything. He did everything he needed to do. And once again, and we heard the Prime Minister defending uh, his vacation today. Normalement de famille canadienne, on est allé rester chez des amis pour les vacances de Noël. Toutes les règles ont été suivies. This morning, his comments were uh, were um, incredibly out of touch, and it shows um, where the Prime Minister um, fails to understand the seriousness of this, likening it to any Canadian who stayed on their friend's couch over over Christmas, his accepting an $84,000 gift and staying at a luxurious villa in Jamaica. And of course, you know, part of this is the optics of this trip, uh, particularly at a time when a lot of Canadians are feeling the squeeze. And over and over again, the Conservatives in this committee said, you know, the Prime Minister is entitled to a vacation, but is this really the vacation that he should be taking at this time when a lot of, you know, Michael Barrett started the meeting by reading a number of headlines uh, of, of people who are struggling to put food on their table working all the time. We, we know those stories. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is also not the first time this Prime Minister has been in, in hot water over vacations, over trips he's taken. We can think of his trip to Tofino that he took on the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And, of course, there was the 2016 uh, trip uh, to the Aga Khan Island. Uh, yes. Yeah, more, so perhaps as much uh, a point that they may or may not be trying to make about the rules as a political point, Kate about reminding people about the expense of this vacation and Justin Trudeau's track record. What happens now? 
So the ethics commissioner is going to go uh, to a committee meeting, which will prolong discussion mm. on, on this particular vacation uh, in the weeks ahead. That's set to happen when the House starts sitting again uh, after January 29th. Um, but uh, the, 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 the committee did move to expand the topics that will be discussed on that day. It won't just be the Jamaica vacation. It'll be all MP travel. And it is worth noting uh, that the committee did uh, vote down a motion from the uh, from the Conservatives that would see all of the details of uh, the discussion between the Ethics Commissioner and the Prime Minister ahead of this Jamaica trip, that will not be made available, uh, even though the Conservatives pushed for that uh, in today's committee hearing. Okay. The CBC's Kate McKenna, thanks for bringing us up to speed. Thank you. Ethics Commissioner will soon be called to the hot seat on Parliament Hill. MPs on the Ethics Committee want answers regarding the Prime Minister's Christmas vacation in Jamaica. It is also a question, uh, not just that that uh, the Prime Minister went somewhere. It's that he accepted an $84,000 gift. He didn't sleep so, on, on a couch at, uh, at uh, Uncle Buck's uh, place. Three different stories out of the PMO in the space of two weeks means that uh, our BS detector should be firing. But the Prime Minister insists no rules were broken when his family reportedly stayed at a luxury estate owned by family friend Peter Green. Enormément de familles canadiennes. On est allé rester chez des amis pour les vacances de Noël. Toutes les règles ont été suivies. Will there be political fallout from another prime ministerial vacation? It's time to bring in the, pan the power panel. Amanda Alvaro is a political commentator. And here with me, Jordan Leichnitz, is the Canada Program Manager for the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. Tim Powers is the chair of Summa Strategies. And Sherelle Evelyn is the managing editor of The Hill Times. Welcome, power panel. Uh, you know, another year, another meeting of the Ethics Committee. Uh, <laughs> why not kick off here? Amanda, um, here we are again trying to get answers about who paid for another prime ministerial vacation uh you know what do you think when you see this playing out like surely there was another way to to do this surely this could have been avoided well i think first and foremost there's a big difference between optics and ethics and i think optically we may not like that he went on a vacation at all or that he went to this particular resort or that he stayed with friends who gifted him this stay. We may not like that optically. But ethically, it appears that nothing was wrong. And this is where I think that there's a major breakdown. We have an ethics commissioner in place for a reason. So the prime minister's office, the prime minister goes to the ethics commissioner to get the, the rubber stamp on the fact that he's taking this exact trip. He gets it and then somehow they find themselves in front of the ethics committee. This is the difference between ethics and optics. And the conservatives use this to their advantage. And, and I'll say rather effectively, right? They'll put it out there. It doesn't matter if we go through an ethics committee meeting or bring the commissioner in and it's found that no rules were breached. The problem is that the damage is done. If we talk about weeks on end, if we talk about the fact that there's been an ethics breach or, uh, you know, rules have been broken, that's what's left in the minds of Canadians. So I, I still think it's a dangerous game to play. I know the Conservatives get a lot of mileage out of it, but while it may have been optically not the right thing to do, ethically, it appears like the rules have been followed. Tim, what do you think? I actually agree with everything Amanda said. That may be a first on this program. <laughs> 
However, where I will have, where I will, the path I will go down, and, and, and Amanda won't shock Amanda, and it won't shock anybody else, um, I'll quote an old panelist from this program, Tom Flanagan. And Tom used to say, politics is 90% communications and 10% everything else. And if that weighting still holds true, then the Prime Minister, who was not daft, who was not stupid, had to have known that if this story came to the fore, as it did, and the sum of, what is it, nearly $90,000 came out, uh, that in a time when he and his government are struggling to communicate with Canadians over affordability, it is going to be portrayed as, and feel like to many, a slap in the face, even though it may be entirely legitimate. But because we live in this political world in which we do and when you're the Canadian uh, Canada's first first minister you got to know the stuff and you have to be wiser if it matters to you the prime minister also may be calculating that you know what I know this is going to be a story I know they're going to come after me on this vacation I'm just going to do it anyway because it's important to my family however that may bring him contentedness but it may not bring his party contentedness mm -hmm. the final point i'd make is look i um i know a, a first minister from the atlantic region uh who because uh, he flies uh, often to go where he goes to avoid criticism never flies in business class fully mm -hmm. entitled to it sits mm -hmm. in the back Dwight Ball, another panelist here, former premier, did the same thing. I mean, it may suck, and people may think <laughs> you should get the perks of office, but exercising the perks of office now can often be a political penalty, and Justin Trudeau is feeling that yet again. Sherelle, uh, one thing I want to bring in here that, uh, you know, you can say, well, he, he followed all the rules. I think one thing that probably gave this story legs from a journalism perspective was that we heard one version of what was happening here in terms of who was paying from the Prime Minister's office, and then those facts changed. Talk to me about, about how that fits into the story. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, you, if it wasn't an issue, if all the, you know... T's have been crossed and I's have been dotted, then why then was the the PMO not either not given the right information or just didn't, you know, deliver the right information? And once you have that discrepancy, of course, everybody's, yeah, those BS meters are going to start pinging and going off. And now that's when people want to start digging into what's actually going on here. Because, and I'm sure the Prime Minister's office probably thought, why is this an issue? The Prime Minister's taken this trip before. <laughs> and so... It, and that didn't set off, you know, the same type of firestorm. So, you know, so I mean, all, there was, all of there a sudden, was some grief at the time, although I think it seems worse this time around. Is, yeah. is, it was definitely yeah. worse this time. Mm -hmm. And now that you also, and then you add in the Prime Minister's history with, you know, luxury vacations gifted by people who are supposed to be friends, at least this time, I think, with the with the Greens, there's a little bit more of a legitimacy to the, the friend aspect of it that, you know, the previous Ethics Commissioner um, didn't find with the, with the Aga Khan. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would actually uh, refute a little bit what Amanda said. I'm going to be the outlier and disagree a bit with Amanda and Tim <laughs> and, and say, you know, the ethics commissioner, he can't, they can't rubber stamp. Yes. They cannot rubber stamp the, the prime minister's vacation before it happens. They can offer advice mm -hmm. and say these are the rules and you should make sure that you follow them. Just like we saw with, you know, in Ontario with Doug Ford, his stag and doe, he said it was cleared by the ethics commissioner 100%. Obviously, that wasn't the case because they can't do that. They don't write you a note saying, uh, ethically You don't fine. have to go to school today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, to, so once you start bringing in all of these various different elements, then, yeah, everybody's going to start scratching their heads and saying, wait a second, all of these things aren't quite adding up. And even if it is perfectly legitimate, the way that we got to the yep. end point is, was a little too bumpy. 
Uh, Jordan, I, I do think the NDP's position in all of this is interesting. There's always the question in committees like this about sort of where they're going to land. Um, do you think that because the vacation was so expensive, it sort of obligates the NDP to say, Mm, not so great. Well, I certainly think it doesn't help. Politically, and, yeah. Politically, yeah. there's no reason for them to carry water for the prime minister on mm. this. And I think that the point that uh, that you know Daniel was making at committee today, which is that we have we have a problem here. You know, there's a judgment problem on the part of the prime minister. Even if the rules were followed, well, do these rules really make sense? The idea that you would be able to accept such a large gift from somebody if it's a friend is a really enormous loophole. And it's something that you can see most Canadians, yes, if we, you know, and I think the Prime Minister's line today, truly, it was just terrible. Was. Uh, really, really should most be Most Canadians out. stayed with friends wow. over the holidays. Yeah. Most Canadians stayed with friends, yes, but most Canadians do not have friends that own private villas on islands mm-hmm. um, and they're, you know, that are worth $7,000 a <laughs> night, right? So this is the kind of messaging that I think actually risks worsening the problem for the Prime Minister rather than getting out of it. And I think the NDP had a really good point about the need to look at these rules overall, about whether that's an overbroad type of exemption. I mean, Catherine, last night my mother let me stay home with her in Newfoundland, but I had to fill the car up. $100 later, it was not free. Um, listen, Amanda, I guess my, my question for you, there's a couple of things I'm wondering about here. One is, I, I, like, I take your point, um, the man's entitled to a vacation. There is no, uh, we, we do not have evidence that any rules were broken. But I guess that what I would then ask you is, Christmas is going to roll around next year. We may not be in an election. Yeah. The prime minister may well still um, be the prime minister. Would you advise him to take this same vacation? <laughs> no, but I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying yeah, to be like. No, like, know, if the point is that he's he's allowed to to take vacations, and I, we do all accept that he is, is it prudent to do this again? No, Catherine. No, I would not. <laughs> <laughs> vacation. This is why sometimes they need to hire external comms firms. But anyways, um, I'll say this. I think that. You know, I also think that the number that's been floated around, I don't think that's been verified by anyone, which goes to show how quickly we can just glom on to whatever numbers mm-hmm. out in the ether and in that ether and that just must be what it costs. Actually there's it's a wide variance. Even even at its lowest rate, it's an it's an expensive resort, but it's far less than the number that's been uh, that we've been talking about. I do think that, listen, and this is where it comes back to optics and from a communication standpoint, I do think that at a time when Canadians are struggling and when we've been talking about affordability, it's very challenging, and we're seeing this right now in real time, to make the case that it's okay to go on vacation of this magnitude at a luxury resort when people are struggling. And I do think that that comes down to a bit of judgment, not that he's not entitled to a vacation or the family's not entitled to a vacation. In fact, there probably hasn't been a year where they, you know, haven't needed it more. But I do think that there, you know, there's something that comes into play where you have to say, listen, in light of what everyone else is feeling and going through the anxiety that people feel, now may not be the right time to take that type of vacation vacation and that was a miss on their part yeah uh, tim i wonder like have, i wonder if you have any insight into having those types of conversations not about this specific issue but when you have to say to a politician like you're not gonna like this one but uh you, you really shouldn't be making this listen choice. The, the best western in belleville is a great spot i'm sure to go. <laughs> I mean, you'll enjoy it prime minister uh in the past yes it was in the day and, and uh, amanda will 
probably relate to this when government ministers used to use challengers more often before, uh, rightly, more scrutiny came on them. And many of them felt that, oh, I should have a challenger to go here, there, and everywhere. And then Canadians started to ask, well, they're not your private jets for your personal trips. And Try having a conversation with a minister in any government who has used one repeatedly and thinks it is their particular vehicle. Yeah, they're not easy, uh, and sometimes you have to fight them. And But again, I, I, I don't want to be too hard on the staff here. Look, the prime minister is his own person. He is not stupid. I will say that again. He may just calculate this, as many prime ministers do. I'm going to take crap for this. I'm going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. It won't matter in the long run. The problem here for him, unlike other ones, is what, two or three weeks before the vacation, he himself said to your colleagues in year-end interviews, and I'm paraphrasing, conservatives are messaging better on affordability. Mm -hmm. We have to do better then. And then this happens? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's less of a political opportunity for the conservatives and more of a blow, I think, to his own party who have to be frustrated, right? That he still controls the party. I'm not saying that. He still... He still has the respect of his MPs, but they must feel frustrated after that acknowledgement mm-hmm. and then this behavior. It sort of cancels it. You know, it cancels that out. Uh, Jordan, I want to sort of look at this from actually quite the other angle, which is we imagine that being prime minister, regardless of who is in the office, is one of the most demanding jobs in the country. Is it fair to say to somebody um, who, you know, in the midst of international conflict, a lot of challenges like... He obviously does not have to stay at the Best Western in Belleville, with all due respect to what I'm sure is a fine institution. Um, you know, but like your, 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 your options are pretty finite here, or you're stuck at Harrington Lake for the foreseeable future. Is that, is that fair to ask of, a, of the leader of a country, regardless of who's in the office? Well, look, I think everybody's entitled to a vacation. I think, mm-hmm. I think that there's no question about that, and that's important for him and his family. But there's, of course, there's, there's gradients of yeah. vacation, and there's, there's lots of options um, between the Best Western and Belleville and the... They're the getting a lot of free I, I don't even know if there's a Best Western in Belleville. I made that up. Yeah. I'm sorry. Then, I hope know, there is. I think Stay there. There <laughs> There are some great places to vacation in Canada and out, and hopefully he'll consider checking them out on his own dime. Okay, we're going to leave this conversation there. Uh, was not sponsored by any travel companies, <laughs> to be crystal clear. Security in the Middle East is fast deteriorating. Multiple nation states and militant groups are now striking targets in the region. Israel continues to hammer Gaza as it fights its war against Hamas. It's also hitting Hezbollah targets in southern Lebanon. Hezbollah is likewise striking Israeli targets in northern Israel from southern Lebanon. Meanwhile, further south, the Houthis in western Yemen continue to target U.S. and U.K. ships in the Red Sea, as well as commercial freight vessels. In response, the U.S. and the U.K. are firing back at Houthi targets in western Yemen. The U.S. is also targeting militant groups in Syria and Iraq in retaliation for attacks on U.S. personnel in both countries. Further east, Iran is now striking targets in Iraq, Syria, and Pakistan. Retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman is a former Vice Chief of Defense Staff of the Canadian Armed Forces. He's now a Senior Defense Strategist at Samuel Associates, a consulting and government relations firm that assists clients with securing government contracts, including defense procurement contracts. Thomas Junot previously served as a Middle East Analyst for the Canadian Defense Department. He's now an Associate Professor at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Happy to have both of you to help put all of this in context, because as we just laid out, there is a lot going on. Vice 
Admiral, I want to start with you. I mean, we have been talking for months now, uh, since the start, really, of this, this escalation uh, of the war between Israel and Hamas. There, there have been concerns that where there would be a widening conflict in the Middle East. Given everything we just laid out, are we there? Well, it, if we're not there, we're getting very close. I'm not exactly sure where we would draw the line. Um, my personal uh, concerns have been uh, the extent to which uh, uh, Hezbollah and the Israelis would, would get involved, and that appears to be underway. And I've been watching Iran very carefully, and their actions today are um, completely provocative. Um, and uh, although I'm somewhat bewildered by the targets they've chosen, they're clearly sending a message that they have the capability uh, to strike uh, inside the region, and, and they're obviously prepared to do so. So I think these are significant concerns. And of course, the Red Sea uh, issues uh, are fairly recent, but uh, they have broader uh, global economic uh, implications uh, as this goes forward. Tomas, you know, is there a particular tipping point that you look at as evidence that this has become a wider conflict? The real tipping point that would bring us into a region-wide conflict, in which case we are in a different world, uh, we have not crossed that tipping point yet, and I remain very cautiously optimistic, though I'm a bit shaky, uh, but still optimistic that we won't reach that tipping point. It's full all-out war between Hezbollah and Israel. Mm. Uh, that's the game changer. As long as that doesn't happen, uh, we are in a dangerous situation. Uh, there is localized fighting in Gaza, extremely serious. Now uh, there is a linked but distinct theater in and around Yemen. Um, but as long as Hezbollah maintains its calculus that it does not want all-out war with Israel, which is the case for now, uh, these are, uh, we are not into the full regional war. If that changes, then we're in a different planet. Okay, let's uh, look at a few of these conflicts and just try to make a bit more sense of what's going on. Vice Admiral, on the Houthis, these U.S. and U.K. strikes have not shown any sign that it is deterring them. Is, is that at all surprising? Uh, not really. Um, many of these uh, launcher systems are mobile. Uh, as I understand it, uh, they might have uh, successfully destroyed 25%, maybe, maybe 30%. Um, clearly, the Houthis are being supported. Uh, they've distributed these capabilities, you know, fairly widely. It's a bit of a needle in a haystack scenario for the Americans and the UK forces. And to be honest, they're having um, a significant asymmetric impact in terms of uh, the fact that they're they're basically bloodying the nose of the West, and that is uh, helpful in the broader uh, anti-Western, anti-American uh, narrative that's uh, all through the Middle East at the moment. As we talk about the narrative, Tomas, you know, uh, the Houthis have said that this, this is retaliation for what is happening in Gaza. How, is that the full picture of what's happening here? No. Um, and and the, the war in Gaza is a pretext uh, for the Houthis. It's the catalyst. Uh, Houthi ideology since the beginning, even when they were a small insurgent group in northwest Yemen 30 years ago, their ideology was already very much anti-Israel, anti-American. So the, the foundation is there. Uh, but over the past years, there have been Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. This is not new. This did not start in the last weeks. It started around 2017. There have been attacks, including on American ships, on other ships. Uh, for those of us watching Yemen, we have seen Houthi capabilities in general, including maritime capabilities, shore-to-sea missiles, amphibious assault teams, naval mines, drone boats. We have seen these capabilities increase fast in recent years, in large part thanks to Iranian support. Uh, 
uh, and given Houthi ideology, given their worldview, given their links to Iran, their very close links to Iran, for all of us, it was just a matter of time before they would put that threat to execution and that it would represent a significant problem for regional security, for the global economy. The war in Gaza was obviously unpredictable, but it provided that pretext. And this is very important context because... Um, there might be a ceasefire in Gaza soon, maybe later, we don't know. Um, when that happens, it will not be the end of the Houthi threat to the Red Sea because these are distinct problems. Well, and, and that perhaps makes this next question all the more pressing. Uh, the U.S. redesignated the Houthis as a specially designated, a specially designated global terrorist. The Canadian government says it's assessing whether or not to add the group to this country's terrorist list. Do you think it's a measure Canada should take and, and, and will it matter? Uh, first of all, just a couple points on the American listing. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration listed the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization, which is a much harsher listing on the last day of its uh, mandate in 2020. Mm -hmm. The Biden administration removed that pretty quickly. The logic here, which is a logic I supported to remove them from that list, was that the benefits were marginal and the costs were significant in terms of hampering humanitarian assistance. Morally, that was a bad idea, but strategically it was a bad idea because it was an argument that the Houthis could use against the U.S. Part of the logic if I understand correctly, this, this from the Biden administration today, is that the SDG designation, specially designated mm -hmm. global terrorist, is lighter in terms of its application, and it is meant to uh, uh, impose certain limits on the Houthis, uh, but not prevent them from traveling, uh, mm -hmm. because you want them to go to Oman or Saudi Arabia to negotiate peace with Saudi Arabia, and it is meant to be, not necessarily not prevent, but at least be less difficult in terms of obstructing uh, humanitarian assistance, and that, at this point, given the tragedy in Yemen, it is essential. So does it matter whether Canada in a fashion follow suit? From, from a Canadian perspective, it doesn't matter uh, because, uh, I mean, symbolically it can matter. It can be seen as a gesture supporting the U.S., which from a Canadian foreign policy perspective is always important. But concretely, in terms of damaging the Houthis, no, it doesn't matter because they don't have financial assets here. They don't travel here. They have virtually no connections to Canada. Uh, Vice Admiral, uh, maybe just in closing on this question of the Houthis, is there anything, given that the, there, there's been no sign that what has happened in recent days is deterring them, is there a path forward that you see here that, that would lead to more meaningful deterrence? Yeah, well, I mean, really, there's only two ways to deal with this, uh, to oversimplify it. One is to continue to attack uh, Houthi facilities as best uh, the, the Americans and the Brits can, um, and that that's a bit of a challenge um, for a variety of reasons. And the second is to uh, continue to keep the diplomatic uh, lines of communication open as uh, Dr. Juno just mentioned, so that if there is some specific interest that can be satisfied um, behind the scenes, then then at least that's a mechanism of doing so. But this is not, it's not a simple problem. It's been around for a long time, as Dr. Juno mentioned, and the, the, the solution is not at sea. Uh, I hate to say that as a naval officer, but the solution <laughs> is ashore, and it, it, it's, uh, it's either going to be um, rectified militarily or diplomatically, and, and I think there's probably a higher probability of success with some sort of diplomatic resolution. Okay. Um, ultimately, they're getting a lot of airtime right now, and their message is uh, fairly um, powerful in terms of they're, they're holding the West at bay, and, th and that's not a good thing for the West uh, to be in that situation. I'd like to get you both to weigh in on Iran. Uh, Vice Admiral, I, I believe you said earlier that you were a bit, uh, I don't think you used the word befuddled, but essentially that by some of the targets that were chosen here. What, what is your reading of what's going on? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we've, we've all been watching Iran very carefully and um, wondering when they would decide that it was an opportunity for them to um, basically show themselves explicitly. I mean, they've been engaged in this for some time through proxies and other organizations, but to actually come out and uh, do what they did um, is, is somewhat troubling, not just because of what it represents, but my concern more broadly is that, um, you know, sure, they've now sent a message to Israel and anybody else that they can reach anywhere they want in the region. Okay, that, that I don't think anybody really doubted that. But why why attack those neighbors? Um, that, 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 to be honest, is a bit confusing for me, and I'm not sure maybe Dr. Juno has some better <laughs> perspectives. The, you know, one of the core elements of Iran's doctrine, of its defense policy, is to push insecurity away from its borders as much as it can, to make sure that fighting occurs outside of its borders, and even better, that others fight for Iran. Uh, that's why Iran, that's partly why Iran supports Hamas in Gaza and other Palestinian groups, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen. It provides them with support. It doesn't cost it a lot of money. I mean, my assessment is that Iran spends maybe in the low 100 to $200 million per year on the Houthis. This is not a lot of money for a great return on an investment that bogs down Saudi Arabia for years in a very costly quagmire that was great bang for the buck for Iran, uh, given its hostile relationship with Saudi Arabia. And now this is just a major bonus for Iran. It sees the U.S. and accessorily the U.K. being themselves stuck into what might become a quagmire uh, for them in Yemen uh, while Iran is shielded from that fighting, right? While Yemenis fight, Yemenis die. Uh, for Iran, this is, it has to count as a tactical success in terms of ensuring its own deterrence and security. It, it, this is so complex as we laid out in the beginning. As we wrap up here, I wonder, uh, Professor Juno, I'll, I'll put this to you in particular, and if uh, Vice Admiral, if you'd like to weigh in, you can. Uh, obviously, the situation is going to continue to change. Is there a piece of context or sort of a lens that you look at this through that you would advise people to, to, to keep in mind as they try to make sense of the, the continual movement of what's happening? Uh, there are a lot of things that I could say to, to answer that question. I think one of them that I'll say, and, and I'll say it because it doesn't get said enough, is um, the humanitarian catastrophe in yes. Yemen. And, yeah. and I've, I've studied in Yemen. I'm a fellow at a think tank on Yemen. I follow Yemen. I, I speak to Yemenis on a regular basis. Um, and, and the humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen is absolutely horrible. And it's been the case for years. And what we're seeing right now is going to make that worse. Uh, and this is not meant as criticism of any specific actor's policies. It's just the reality that what is extremely difficult will become even more difficult because of insecurity in the Red Sea, perhaps because of terrorist listings. We'll see exactly how that plays out. Um, so that aspect is, is not going to get better before it gets worse. Uh, not going to get better in the short term. A quick final word from you, Vice Admiral. Yeah, obviously, I, I would echo that concern. I would add to this, um, one of the perspectives that is often um, missing in the conversation is what, what, are peop what are the individual interests of the different players? And uh, that, I think, um, although there, there's no point in being sympathetic to some of these organizations because they are, you know, uh, they're, they're malignant and, and terrorist organizations, but ultimately... Um, they're all doing this for um, for very specific reasons, and that, although we don't like the answers, it helps us understand perhaps what's going on and why. Yeah, and an important part of all of this. Thank you both so much for your perspective today. Really appreciate this. Thank you, Thank Professor, you. Professor Thomas Juno and retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman.
Well, that is it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod. You can catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Catherine Cullen, sitting in for David Cochran. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.